Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. Um, And it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome David Roll here, um, the author of a great uh, new biography on uh, George Marshall. And uh, we're going to uh, discuss uh, that book. But before we do that, Dave is going to give you a little bit of background um, on George Marshall and an overview of his life as a, a... I assume that nobody here actually was in the war during that time, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. Just wanted to make sure. Go ahead. Yes, Dave. So George Catlett uh, Marshall Jr., <clears throat> uh, known, if at all, today as the man with a plan, of course, the Marshall Plan, not to be confused with George Preston Marshall, former owner of the Washington Redskins. (laughs) During his bitterly contested divorce, Preston Marshall's wife complained to the judge, I married a man without a plan. (laughs) (laughs) When George uh, C. Marshall was uh, spearheading, as Secretary of State, was spearheading the uh, historic European recovery program, later known as the Marshall Plan, through Congress, uh, President Truman's uh, advisor, Clark Clifford, recommended that the uh, plan be called the Truman Plan. At the time, Truman's numbers, uh, approval numbers were in the tank. They were worse than Trump's. <laughs> and uh, uh, Truman responded, if I send that plan up to the Hill, my name on it will quiver a couple of times, go belly up and die. Even the worst Republican, he said, would sign on to the, would vote for the plan if uh, Marshall's name were attached to it. And Truman was dead right. Uh, By the middle of the uh, 20th century, uh, General Marshall was the most respected uh, public figure in America. Um, As early as 1918, during the Great War, he had, uh, he he planned, he, he he rose to prominence by planning and executing a brilliant uh, nighttime movement, 600,000 American troops, putting them in place to fight and win the uh, decisive battle, Meuse-Argonne, that ended the First World War. General Pershing, who was in charge of all the American troops in France, was so impressed with Marshall's performance that he made him his uh, closest personal aide after the war, his own chief of staff. And during the Second World War, Marshall was chief of staff of the entire United States Army. <clears throat> and in that job, he, uh, he organized from scratch. He planned, uh, he, he uh, supplied, he trained an army of more than 8 million men and women. He, uh, during that war, Second World War, he was the dominant voice in matters of allied grand strategy deployment of troops across, across the globe. <clears throat> And right after the war, almost, almost the, the, the day after he retired from the Army, um, Truman sent him to China. Uh, his mission was to, uh, believe it or not, is to end the Civil War, um, <clears throat> form a coalition government between the Chinese nationalists and Mao Zedong's Chinese communists. Lots of luck with that. Um, <laughs> 47 and 48, uh, Secretary of State, pushed through the Marshall Plan, um, laid the groundwork for NATO, oversaw the Berlin Airlift, and in 1948, um, showed down in the Oval Office with uh, President Truman. Um, Marshall uh, lost a temper over Truman's decision to to have the uh, U.S. be the first nation to recognize the the new state of Israel. a year as president of the American Red Cross. And then Truman called upon Marshall one more time, this time to be Secretary of Defense. Uh, and in that job, he helped rebuild the American armed forces that had been depleted following the Second World War. <clears throat> He's probably known best, though, for um, overseeing 
the relief of firing General Douglas MacArthur. Um, and oh, yes, and, and he uh, also accepted the, the Nobel Peace Prize in 1953. So the sheer sweep of Marshall's 50-year career, soldier and statesman, under 10 presidents, is truly breathtaking. <clears throat> That's my introduction. Good. <laughs> so how many of your neighbors do those kind of things? <laughs> so we have this character, and he is uh, clearly known as a stoic character. I mean, he's, he's, he's got a, a, a sort of strictness about him. Uh, and and uh, I'd like to like, look into a little bit about the background, because you cover a lot of his, his background. So before we get back to World War II, let's go, go back to the beginnings. Um, so uh, what were the parental influences, the, the way he looks at it? You know? He regards um, a conversation. So he was like 15, 15 years old, uh, living in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, southwest Pennsylvania. His father was a gregarious business businessman, George Catlett, Marshall Sr. Um, but he had a brother, Stuart, who was six years older. Stuart had gone to uh, the Virginia Military Institute, which is down in Lexington, Virginia. I was just down there last last week. Um, <clears throat> and that's where VMI, Virginia Military Institute, is. And Stuart had gone there, and he was talking in the kitchen with his mother, with Marshall's mother, and Marshall overheard him say that uh, Flicker, they used to, Marshall's nickname back then when he was a teenager was Flicker, which was sort of uh, symbolic of it. He was kind of a feckless kid running around uh, town. He didn't uh, excel at studies and so forth. But Stewart said to his mother uh, that he should not go to VMI. He would disgrace the family. And, uh, you know, Marshall really talked about that a lot. And uh, so that was uh, an incentive. Um, obviously, he went to VMI when he was only 16 years old. Um, he arrived late. He had had typhoid fever. Uh, but he, he rose to become uh, first captain of the entire cadet corps. Um, by the time he was, uh, I think he was 20 in his uh, senior year at, at uh, VMI. Today, there's uh, there are two statues outside the VMI barracks. Uh, one is of Stonewall Jackson, who taught there, uh, <clears throat> who taught at uh, VMI <clears throat> uh, before the Civil War. In fact, Stonewall violated the laws by uh, running a school for, uh, for, for slaves. He was educating slaves. I never knew that until I got into this. Uh, but Stonewall's there, and then Marshall was... Uh, has a statue outside there. Marshall's uh, Stonewall has a statue in the cemetery uh, at uh, VMI. We're not. I don't know what's going to happen to all that stuff. But that's another story. <laughs> that's another story. Um, so th- that was and and later on and uh, after Stewart after uh, Marshall married the Belle of uh, of, uh, of of Lexington, Virginia. Uh, uh, he uh, her name was Lily. Carter Coles. She lived in a little house right outside the VMI limit gate. And Marshall risked demerits. He risked his position as first captain in his senior year by seeing her on evenings uh, in this little house that she lived with her mother just beyond the VMI limit gate. He married her in 1902. She died tragically in 1925. We can talk about that later. But he uh, <clears throat> discipline was ground into him. At VMI, that's what he told an interviewer. Uh, he learned self-control. He learned self-mastery. Um, tw- Forty years later, after <clears throat> uh, during the dark Valley Forge days, just uh, when everything was going to hell in World War II, January, February 1942, Marshall was still fighting to achieve control, self-mastery. On winter nights, he would walk with his second wife, Catherine, Lily had died, and he would he would literally talk to himself. Catherine wrote about it. Um, he would he would say such things as, "I cannot, I cannot allow myself." He had a temper problem. I cannot allow myself <clears throat> to get angry. And this was an, everything was going down the chute, particularly in the Pacific. Um, 
I cannot, uh, <clears throat> I cannot afford the luxury of sentiment, he would say. Uh, you know, mine must be cold logic. And he was probably thinking at that time of how he would have to tell General MacArthur, whose troops were on the Bataan Peninsula, January, February, 42, he'd have to tell MacArthur that his troops were doomed. They would have to die or surrender. There would be no rescue. Marshall tried, it, tried his best. He and Eisenhower tried to get rescue boats through to MacArthur. Couldn't be done. Could not penetrate the Japanese Navy. So he would, ha- he would have to make decisions like that or how he would have to tell his best, some of his best friends um, who were generals that they were too old to command troops in combat. And he said that was, that was one of his uh, toughest um, kinds of decisions. So uh, what else? That was the development of his character. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, I've skipped a whole lot of 40 years, but it was, it, was, it was born. He is convinced that it really developed at, uh, at VMI. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. I, I'll, we'll we'll take, yeah. go back a little bit yeah. again. Go ahead. Yeah. One of the interesting things uh, about uh, Lily, yeah. um, and, and first I wanted to ask the audience, how many of you uh, got part of your ambition in life from the scorn of an older sibling? <laughs> okay, that happens. You know, this yeah. is a relatively common thing um, when you have siblings that give you a hard time, that that, that gives you a reason to, to outdo them or whatever. So that's one of George Marshall's things. Well, he took it pretty far because Lily actually was somebody who used to date his older brother, Stuart. We think so, yeah. 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 Yes. That she turned him down or something, right? We don't, yeah. Don't something, know the story. something happened. And, and when, um, when at, right after Marshall um, married Lily, 1902, he married, uh, spent their wedding night at the New Willard Hotel in Washington. Mm-hmm. And that's when he learned that Lily uh, could not withstand pregnancy. Um, she was four years older than Marshall, but she had a congenital heart a problem. And uh, they were married for 25 years, and, and uh, I think most of the letters were uh, destroyed uh, or law, destroyed probably by Marshall's second wife or by Marshall himself. Um, but there, it was a romantic relationship. Uh, it was a sexual relationship. Uh, because of the few letters that I was able to find that Marshall wrote in 1917 when he was in, in the in World War One to Lily, um, so but but Marshall and Lily uh, were in China before the First World War together. Obviously, before Lily died, and she died in 1927. But <clears throat> before the First World War, they were in, in uh, Japan, uh, China, Korea, and they spent a, a uh, and, and, and at that point, Stuart made some comment mm-hmm. uh, in a letter or perhaps when uh, Marshall was home about Lily that was negative. And uh, Marshall said, I cut him off at that point. That ended the relationship. No more letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing uh, with Stuart. And not a great relationship with his father, <clears throat> um, but a warm relationship uh, uh, with his mother. And I just have to say that uh, one of the things that you know I think distinguishes this book is that there there were a lot of letters that were donated uh, after some of the biographies, uh, earlier biographies that were written in recent years by the family. Um, see, Marshall Marshall never had children of his own. Lily, of course, could not become pregnant, could not risk pregnancy, and uh, by the time he married his second wife, they were in their uh, he was 49 and she was 45. She had three kids. Uh, so he had, step, he had stepsons and a stepdaughter, two stepsons and a stepdaughter. And he had great relationships uh, with them and he formed uh, bonds, bonds with them. But the, uh, the letters uh, that, that Catherine exchanged with Marshall and the letters that he wrote uh, to those children uh, were donated to the Marshall Library in recent years, and they provided me with a, a way to talk about his inner life, a way to, to deal with it, because, you know, as you said, he has this reputation of being coolly impersonal, stoic, austere, aloof, as if he, as if he had no feelings. Mm-hmm. But with those, uh, 
with those uh, step step kids, uh, his uh, his his uh, his emotions uh, were revealed in my judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why I asked yeah. because you, you do a very good job of bringing that out. Another right. thing that I found really interesting about the book was uh, that you show a lot of stories uh, about other famous people from World War I and earlier and where they were and, and how they related to each other and sort of the backstory. We kind of know the story of World War II a little bit better of these famous people like MacArthur and Truman and so on and so forth and George Patton. But you had a lot of very interesting stories from World War I yeah. about those characters, what they did, and also you, know, you, you mentioned in your, in your overview um, of how Marshall organized this whole uh, uh. Uh, battle. But it was interesting, the stories you told about Patton and, and Truman being a captain, and I think a captain. And Pershing. And Pershing, and yeah. So I, um, maybe you can share a couple of those um, stories. Well, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the, I think uh, one of the uh, key moments in, in uh, Marshall's rise within the U.S. Army occurred in 1917 um, with Pershing, um, who was in charge of all the American troops in, in uh, France. Marshall was uh, a major. Uh, in, he was in the 1st Division, uh, 1st Division, which is the big red one in World War II. But the 1st Division was the first division to arrive in France uh, after we declared war in 1917. So, And Marshall was the second guy off the boat uh, to set foot in France, the general. In charge of the 1st Division was the first guy. Marshall was the second. So the big deal in, was to, um, you know, these, these troops, the American troops were green. Uh, you know, they'd just been, we just drafted them. <clears throat> and the idea was to get them trained. They had to be trained in France. Uh, they had some basic training in the U.S., but basically the, the hard part of training. And Pershing was on, under enormous pressure from the, from, the British and the, uh, from the British and the French to put those guys right into the trenches, get them in there, to, because... You know, by that time, the uh, British and the French had been fighting for three and a half years, uh, and you know, they, and they're they were exhausted, uh, and they were losing. Uh, so, but Pershing was under orders from President Wilson and uh, to keep the the American troops intact and to not fritter them away in the trenches. So they had these maneuvers, and there was a big. Uh, mock um, a mock maneuver uh, that Marshall was involved in, uh, and the, the general in charge of the first division was not there when Pershing arrived. And actually, Teddy Roosevelt's son was in this particular maneuver, uh, mock battle, and they were, you know, uh, doing a mock attack. And Pershing arrived, <clears throat> and uh, and then eventually the first division uh, general arrived. Pershing was uh, headed in for the. First Division, you know, he was very, very angry with the performance, uh, and he stood out, and he just ripped this general, Marshall Superior, up and down. And Marshall stepped forward uh, in front of everyone. There's a photo in the book. Um, and and he said, wait a minute, uh, General Pershing. Um, I've been here the longest, and I know what the facts are. So let me just tell you, and then he just went into a fusillade, a fusillade of uh, factual incidents, and he was basically blamed uh, Pershing's, uh, Pershing's headquarters for being responsible for the lack of uh, uh, equipment and uh, lack of uh, uh, support. Uh, that was causing uh, Pershing to be so angry at the 1st Division. And he basically was blaming Pershing's headquarters. Uh, and Pershing said, well, I'll look into it. And he turned to an aide uh, to write down you know, something or other. And Pershing grabbed Pershing, uh, I mean, Marshall grabbed him by the arm, uh, actually, in front of everybody. And said, no, you don't have to uh, look into it. These are the facts. I've just told you the situation. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and everybody, and and then Pershing got the hell out of there. Um, but <laughs> Pershing actually appreciated, and he felt that he he was he was he was, you know, he he thought some of this stuff was true, 
he would, and he wanted to check it out, and I think he probably was. And so he uh, he never forgot Marshall. In fact, they became he, he, uh, Pershing began consulting uh, Marshall. So that was sort of a truth to power, and there are two or three other key incidents in Marshall's rise where he did such things. He risked his entire career, but in, in fact, um, it had consequences. And uh, so, uh, in fact, it, what, what happened to Marshall was he never commanded troops because uh, Pershing thought he was so valuable in terms of training troops and in terms of uh, strategy for some of the battles. Marshall planned the first American battle. Uh, it was two regiments. It's called the Battle of Cantigny, early 1918. And he didn't, he didn't command the troops in that battle. He planned it, but he was under fire. He was uh, under artillery fire and uh, machine gun fire because he was out in the middle of the night reconnoitering uh, the ground. Uh, for this, uh, and it was a small battle, but it was the first American offensive of the war. And the, and the two regiment, two U.S. Uh, regiments in the first division uh, fought together, and Teddy Roosevelt Jr. was in that one uh, as well. And he, you know, he distinguished himself there. And then they put him in charge of a major planning exercise for the Meuse-Argonne battle, which was the one that ended the war. And that's when he he planned that. Amazing nighttime, two 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 week nighttime movement uh, from Saint Mihiel up until up to the Meuse Argonne uh, front, and that's when he met MacArthur. Uh, MacArthur was a hero. MacArthur was an amazing hero in that battle. Won I think like five or six uh, silver stars, um, and so and we can talk about the relationship with MacArthur later. But okay. um, I'm not sure. Have I covered something? No, something? no, no. That, that was yeah. that was that was a, yeah. that was great. Um, <laughs> But I have a, a psychological question to ask yeah. you about Uh-oh. Marshall. So uh, he did this with uh, President Roosevelt a couple of times, too, uh, where he just spoke his mind, where you think, you know, you're going to do that, you, you, you can get fired. Now, people uh, have said it both ways. I w- want to know what your judgment was. Do you think that he was yeah. canny about it, or, or do you think he was naive about it and just said what was on his mind, or do you think he, he, he knew when to risk in order to go move forward? Well, I don't. In in 1938, uh, that was the first. Uh, uh, in 1938, there was this November 1938. Uh, Hitler was on the march. I think it was right after Kristallnacht, um, <clears throat> and Roosevelt called together all the military chiefs, including uh, and, well, and in his cabinet uh, for a meeting. So he had his cabinet officers and a lot of the military chiefs, and, and Marshall was kind of in the back. He was a, I don't know what he was then. He was not a general. He was a, a major, uh, something like that, colonel. He was a colonel. Marshall was in the war plans uh, uh, section of the War Department at that time in Washington. So he was in this meeting, and Roosevelt was wheeled in, uh, and Roosevelt had this plan how are we going to deter? How are we going to deter Hitler in Europe? And his plan was, you know, let's not raise an army. Let's instead produce uh, thousands and thousands of warplanes. And, and he didn't say this, but he wanted what he wanted to do was sell them to the French and the British so that they could uh, stop Hitler's uh, from advancing further. Um, and so he came out with this plan. He made a proposal to the entire group, said, I propose that we, uh, we build, we come up with a plan to build 10,000 warplanes in such and such a, a time. Um, and he went around the room asking for opinions. Um, and he finally got to Marshall in the back, and he knew him. He knew Marshall by then. And, he's, and he said, Everybody, everybody had said, "Oh, that's a great idea. Let's do that." And you know, here I'd like to, I'll, I'll develop the plan, and we'll come back and we'll do that. Nobody objected, but Marshall did, and and uh, Roosevelt said, "What do you think about that, George?" He called him by George. Marshall was somewhat offended that that Roosevelt would call him by his first name because he had no, you know, he had no close connection with him. Marshall was like that. Um, and he probably had an expression on his face that uh, Roosevelt could sense. <laughs> uh, 
And he said, Mr. President, I don't agree with that at all. And it shocked the room, and it shocked Roosevelt. Um, uh, he wasn't used to being talked to like that. Was that planned? Uh, some people thought it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't imagine he would plan, plan such a thing uh, uh, like that. Um, and I don't think he was, at that point, he was nothing, you know, mm-hmm. in that group. Uh, and to take a, a risk like that consciously, uh, I mean, the room did clear. Uh, and his friends said, you're done. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think when he, uh, when Roosevelt was interviewing Marshall, so what happened after that is Harry Hopkins uh, took Marshall under his wing. They, they knew he was a potential ri- rising star, Mar- and Roosevelt had not cut him off. But at Christmas 1938-39, Hopkins... I wrote a book about Hopkins uh, before this one. Hopkins uh, summoned Marshall for a meeting uh, when there was nothing going on between Christmas and New Year's. And he really spent hours with Marshall talking about what needed to be done to prepare the nation for war. This was, you know, uh, long before we got in the war. Um, And Marshall was brilliant at telling Hopkins what we needed. Hopkins went to Roosevelt and said, this guy really knows his stuff. So a Sunday in April of 1939, Marshall was called into the White House uh, to see uh, Roosevelt. Sunday afternoon, nothing was going on. And this was Roosevelt's interview of Marshall to, to determine whether he's going to be chief of staff of the United States Army, which is the head of the whole U.S. Army, as war was on the horizon, for sure. <clears throat> now here, I think it might have been more calculating because, you know, Roosevelt said, you know, he, beat, he always beats around the bush. And he said, what? he said, I have it in mind. I have it in mind, General Mar or not General Marshall. Yeah, he was general by then, General Marshall, um, to appoint you chief of staff. What do you think of that? <laughs> Marshall said, well, uh, before we, you know, make that decision, I want to tell you something. Um, I want you to know that I'm going to tell you the truth as I see it, uh, and it's not going to be pleasant a lot of the time. Uh, I mean, it's going to be, you know, be some good news, some bad news, but I'm going to tell you the way I see it, and I want you to understand that. And and uh, <clears throat> you know, Roosevelt gave him a, a smile. And he said, "No, I'm serious." Uh, this is, you know, this this is the way it's going to be if if you decide to appoint me chief of staff. Um, so there, he desperately wanted to be chief of staff. Mm-hmm. He did not want any lobbying to be going on, and there was lobbying going in the background. He couldn't. He was trying to keep it down. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of there were there were three or four people that were eligible, generals that were eligible that were his seniors. So he knew he was not, uh, you know, top of the list. Uh, but he took that risk, mm-hmm. and I think that was probably more calculated. Okay, uh, you know, um, you know, Marshall started out with with uh, Roosevelt. He used to say, "I was the best of a bad bargain," meaning, you know, there were people ahead of him. General Drum was way ahead of him. Mm-hmm. Drum made a mistake of lobbying for the job; he didn't get it, <clears throat> um, and so uh, he was on. He didn't feel like he was on strong footing uh, with Marshall for, you know, a couple of years. I'm with, uh, I'm sorry, with the president for a couple of years. So he, he hung back. He, 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 he did not, he was not, you know, in the office all the time. He didn't want to, he wanted to have a standoffish relationship with the president. He used Hopkins. He used Hopkins, uh, who was the closest one to Roosevelt, uh, as a window into what uh, Robert Sherwood called uh, Roosevelt's heavily forested interior. <laughs> uh, I love that phrase. Um, because you could never, un- you never knew where Roosevelt was coming from. You, kn- you know, he would tell, a lot of people came out of his office hearing what they wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and 
Marshall began to understand. He did not want to become friends with him. He did not want to go to Hyde Park. He did not want to drink with him during the children's hours uh, that he had with some of his, uh, his, his buddies. He wanted to be all business, professional. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. In the 1927, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, one of the moves that Marshall made was he, he took over Fort Benning, right? And, and this was not uh, what, a plum assignment. This was not something, but he had a plan, and the plan worked brilliantly for what he did. So I, I, yeah. I wanted to just Fort explain Benning. that a little bit. Yeah. I did a lot of research on his years at Fort Benning because they were seminal for the war, actually. So after Lily died, you know, she had an operation to remove a thyroid, infected thyroid gland that was affecting her heart. She survived the operation, but then, you know, a week or so later, she did, she was writing a letter to, to Marshall, or to her mother, and she just, her heart stopped. So she tragically died. Marshall was beside himself, um, and and it was the lowest point uh, of his, his life. He really loved her. And so uh, he told Pershing that he felt lost, doubted he could face the future, that he wrote a letter. But then it, in this letter he said, I will find a way. So he got himself appointed the head of the academic program at, at the Fort Benning Infantry School, rural Georgia, um, 1920, um, 1928, 27, late 27, way down in rural, near Columbus, Georgia. Um, and this provided him with an opportunity to assess and evaluate, teach, train upwards of 200 army officers, young army officers at the time, who would become generals and lead the nation, lead our nation in the next war, included Omar Bradley, uh, Norman Cota, uh, Stilwell. Uh, the, the, the list just goes on and on. And these were the, the backbone. So, the backbone of the, uh, uh, the, those guys became the generals, the backbone of the U.S. Army in World War II. So it was a, it was a, and 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 Marshall, you know, found himself uh, recovered from this, you know, the uh, depression that he was kind of in after Lily had died, and you know, Benning offered him an opportunity to ride and hunt and fish, and he became, you know, he became friends with people in town in Columbus, Georgia. And one of the things, though, that is interesting. Um, they had two regiments on the Fort Benning base of, of you know, regular Army uh, soldiers. One regiment was all white, uh, and that was the regiment that they used for training exercises so that the officers would learn how to execute orders and uh, conduct maneuvers and so forth. But there was another regiment. It was 25th uh, Infantry Regiment, all black. <clears throat> they were indentured servants, basically, on the base. They built the they, they you know they they mowed the lawns they constructed the barracks they cleaned up uh, they were not allowed to carry rifles uh, they lived in shacks uh, <clears throat> behind the barracks um, and what's amazing is that you know all of the letters and everything that I researched with Marshall not a mention uh, indifferent uh, and you know. This was Jim Crow South, um, and he used to social. I did a lot of work on well, who was he hanging out with in uh, Columbus, Georgia. Uh, he was hanging out with the, the sporting crowd, the, the people that were hunting and fishing, and and uh, the presidents of the bank. He was in the Rotary Club there, and and, and that's where he got a lot of his uh, social life. And there was a uh, a firebrand editor. In Columbus, Georgia, this was sort of the hotbed of lynching. Uh, <clears throat> Columbus, Georgia, there was a firebrand editor who came down from Atlanta. Uh, he had been to Europe, and he had a fancy wife. And they, uh, and he got a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, and everybody knew him. Marshall knew him. Uh, uh, he got a Pulitzer Prize, one of the first Southern newspapers to get a Pulitzer Prize for, for uh, revealing, uh, you know, lynching. Uh, so... Marshall knew, you know, he was 
and, and that crowd was, you know, fairly liberal, believe it or not, for Columbus, Georgia, that he hung out with. Uh, so he knew what was going on. And that later, you know, plays into, uh, you know, how, how uh, he dealt with uh, blacks during uh, World War II. And we can come to that later. Yeah. But the whole Benning thing was, I think, uh, seminal for, uh, for Marshall's uh, career. So he knew... He knew all these uh, guys who became generals, and so when he, when, in order to build an army in World War II, you, know, you have to have money, you have to have equipment, you've got to have talent, and so he he knew who to call upon: Eisenhower, uh, you know, Patton, all these people. So uh, it was a seminal period for him. Right, and uh, uh, one of his yeah. uh, one of the instructors at Benning was in Germany in 1936. In January of 36, wrote him a letter that said you had this in your book that said that that uh, Hitler uh, was oh. was uh, planning on at least moving on the east and getting more Lebensraum, and that he will be ready by 1939. This was in January of 1936. That was a guy who was training over there, yeah. yeah a guy named Truman Smith. I Truman remember Smith. because his first name was Truman. I thought that was pretty. Yeah, funny. I know. Not, it had nothing to do with the, the, the president. But it's a, a very clear-sighted piece of information. I'm sure he got lots of other ones um, from the people that he had trained to, to, to be direct about right. things. Yeah. Well, during the Depression, he was, uh, Marshall was actually running CCC camps on, in the South and also in the Northwest. Uh, he loved that. It was a citizen, you know, it was that basically he saw these kids coming from, you know, Brooklyn and, you know, in San Francisco, and they were working together, and he just loved the idea of the citizen. He could see the citizen army uh, when, he, when, he, when he did that. It was one of, his, uh, one of the things that he and uh, Catherine really uh, enjoyed. Catherine, his second wife, her, her name was Catherine Boyce Tupper, and he met her in 1929 uh, her, her, uh, in, at Fort Benning. She, had, she was coming to see her roommate from college. She went to Holland's College. And Catherine Boyce Tupper grew up in Gramercy Park, New York um, City. She was a Shakespearean actress uh, who had played on the English stage, uh, a very uh, amazing woman. And uh, it became the most important person in his life. I did a lot of research about Catherine's background and how she, her husband, her first husband, where she had three children with him, was a lawyer, Baldwin. He was murdered the year before Marshall met her, murdered by a, a, a disgruntled client in Baltimore. And I always say, you know, we're both lawyers. Yeah. If you, if, if the problem was that the, 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 he, he won a big judgment for this client. But then the client thought, thought uh, the husband's bill was too high, so he didn't pay it. So the so Catherine's husband sued the client, and I always say, when you sue a client for fees, bad things can happen. <laughs> <laughs> you get sued for malpractice if you do it, right, um, right. and you know about that. Yeah, yeah. So, but this in this case, uh, her husband was murdered by a client, and so she was coming off of that when she met Marshall, and they immediately they hit it off, um, and and he and he wrote a letter to Pershing. Um, uh, after after Catherine had decided that that the marriage would work, Catherine was kind of in charge, uh, <laughs> and they decided to get married in 1930. Um, and he he wrote Pershing said, "I'm going to acquire a complete family." He had never had, you know, family, and there were two teenage boys and an older girl uh, that he was, you know, uh, becoming uh, a a father to. Uh, and so, uh, and he, he he exalted, and he asked Pershing, um, this is 1930, to be his best man. And so, ramrod straight, if you've ever seen photos of Pershing, mm-hmm. Black Jack Pershing stood at Marshall's side when he was married to Catherine in an Episcopal church in Baltimore, 1930. You didn't you didn't mention this in the book, but I I, I thought maybe Catherine was thinking, well, you know, if I mar- marry this uh, this general or general to be, nobody's going to kill him. <laughs> Come in to murder him, he'll be dead before he gets through the door. 
You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. So, uh, since we're talking about lawyers for a second, one one nice thing about your book, which was uh, fascinating to me, was that you talked a lot about Lewis Johnson, who was one of the founders, I think, of Steptoe and Johnson, yeah, right? right? Uh, the, the firm that you work for, or and right. have been chairman of. Um, My first book was about him. About yeah. him, yeah. yeah. And uh, and you also mentioned a couple of other uh, top big law lawyers from the early uh, 1900s, and, and the influence had Elihu Root and uh, Grenville Clark. Right. And those are the founders of the firm that I worked for in New York. So, right. uh, because that's the firm. Joey Ballantyne? Oh, that, or, that, that was Root, yeah. Root Clark, uh, Bruckner, oh, yeah. and Ballantyne. And then when Thomas Dewey lost to Truman, uh, he came and took over. And, yeah. uh, and probably good that he wasn't president of the United States because he was a little dictator in the firm. He probably would have been a, a big dictator in the... In the uh, he was not a fun guy. No, he was not a fun guy. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> no, he no, he was not a fun guy. But you, you talked about that. I, I just wanted you to say. A, I love that. Yeah, a little bit about the idea that these these lawyers that were famous <laughs> and influential that founded the big firms that are still around a hundred years later and everything yeah. had such an influence going in and out of the government. Elihu Root was Secretary of State too for a while, or something like that. The revolving door. Yeah, and so yeah. and and I was just wondering if you think that it's better or worse that it doesn't happen as often that more people revolve from Goldman Sachs than that they do from. A, <laughs> <laughs> no, these, these you know they were they were just a man. Granville Clark was responsible for getting the draft. Getting actually, he was responsible for getting Roosevelt to bring a Republican, two Republicans, into his administration in 1940, uh, right before the Republican convention. Uh, Roosevelt was running for his third term in 1940, and we were you know we, we were definitely going to go to war, but he didn't want to be regarded as a warmonger. So he Roosevelt was not. He wouldn't talk about a draft, but Granville Clark um, and uh, got uh, basically engineered a deal whereby two Republicans came in uh, to the to the to the to Roosevelt's administration in 1940 as Roosevelt was running for president, and the Republican Party was aghast that two of their people had come into the Roosevelt administration. One was Henry Stimson who had Winthrop Stimson at the law firm. Right. Uh, and uh, the other one was, was Knox from Chicago. Uh, he was a rough rider. Uh, uh, and so, uh, and Granville Clark was responsible for that. Uh, he, uh, Lewis Johnson, the guy I wrote about, uh, <clears throat> who founded Steptoe and Johnson, was uh, not, a, not a particularly attractive person. In my view, but he uh, he he was assistant secretary of war under uh, under Roosevelt, and he helped Marshall become chief of staff. Or he takes credit for it. He took credit for a lot of things. <laughs> uh, and and Johnson was also secretary of def- uh, defense under uh, Truman. He helped Johnson helped Truman uh, raise uh, he he raised the money for Truman in the forty eight election. Lewis Johnson then became secretary of defense after Forrestal committed suicide. So you had these, uh, these, 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 and then John J. McCloy was another uh, lawyer, uh, very important lawyer uh, in the War Department during the Second World War, and was uh, had a lot to do with the whole issue of bombing uh, the tracks leading to Auschwitz, bombing out, bombing the camps, uh, and refusing to. He refused to do it, uh, but he was the guy that was the point person. Uh, who uh, was it was they were begging him to to do that near the, in 1944, mm-hmm. but he he uh, basically uh, said no, we're going to win the war, uh, and there were a lot of reasons they gave for why they couldn't bomb the tracks and so forth, which most of which were just excuses not to do it. So uh, <clears throat> anyway, I don't I'm know sure that I'm yeah. sure that people yeah. will ask more yeah. questions. We were up to World War II, and I'd like to. Open it up now to, yeah. to, to uh, everyone here to ask questions. But, uh, you know, Marshall was involved in the atomic bomb decision and so many other things. So what, Secretary what, of State Marshall Plan, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So um, 
I'd like to remind our uh, online and radio audiences that they're listening to David Roll speak about his book on George Marshall, um, the, the, Marshall of Marshall, the Marshall Plan from World War II. And who would like to ask the first question? I read uh, Albert Wiedemeyer's memoirs, and he was a protege of Marshall. But also the Marshall Plan, I also read Kennan's, George F. Kennan. And as I understand it, Kennan wrote most of the Marshall Plan. Is that true? No. Um, I'll tell you what, it, what happened. No, I mean, it, I mean, first of all, the plan... <laughs> Here's what happened. After, after Marshall came back from the, uh, a meeting with Stalin in 1947, spring of 47, Stalin was uh, indifferent to the plight of Europe. Uh, Churchill called it a charnel house. And, you know, people were starving. Place, the, the, the countries were destroyed, particularly Germany. Uh, but the whole, you know, the whole continent. Uh, so... Uh, Marshall came back. <clears throat> he said, we got to do something. He called George Kennan. George Kennan was the expert on the Soviet mentality, Stalin, the DNA. He knew more about the DNA of the Russians. His, 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 what, his long telegram in 1946, you read it today, and it, it, it sounds like it applies to what, what's happening in Russia today. He was brilliant. Anyway, so he brings in Kennan. So that's, that was like the major personnel move uh, Marshall did. And he said to Kennan, we got to do something. <laughs> you got two weeks. Uh, give me a plan. Well, Kennan took three weeks, and he, he, it wasn't a plan. It was an outline. It was, uh, it was a, kind of some first principles, uh, one of which was uh, it, the Europe, you know, if we're going to give money uh, to help revive Western Europe, it, the Europeans are going to have to come together. We've been, they've been fighting with the, each other for hundreds of years. They're going to have to come together and come up with an integrated plan. Uh, so Kennan provided an outline. But then they brought in, they brought in Atchison. They brought in uh, a guy named Will Clayton, who nobody knows about <clears throat> Will Clayton was the was a dollar a year guy in the in the uh, State Department, but he, he was he was a, a you know a billionaire for that time because he was the largest cotton trader in the world, and he knew international trade because the Marshall Plan was partly a trade deal. We need and he was the one who said we need trading partners. You know, if if Europe is a charnel house for the what are we going to do? Uh, you know, this was they were our major trading partner before the uh, f- before the war. We need markets, uh, so it was a, a pretty much a trade deal. Altruistic, yes, uh, but Marshall's genius was bringing in Kennan, Clayton, Atchison, Lovett, Bob Lovett, Chip Bolin, and many many others. And so there was was there a, there was it, it 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 gradually developed into a legislative proposal where they're asking for a, a certain amount of money. Uh, and, and the idea was that, the, uh, that, that the, the Europeans would have to integrate. This was the beginning of the, Euro- the European Union. This was what, you know, and they, they couldn't just ask, I, France needs X amount of money, you know, Germany. And so they had to come up with an overall plan. And then the question was, are we going to offer it to the Soviets? And, and to the Eastern European countries, which were already under the thumb of Stalin. And Kennan said, play it straight. Offer it to them. They'll never accept. And he was dead right. Um, Stalin did not want <clears throat> the, the uh, other countries in Europe uh, understanding his economics. He did not want to expose you know, the economics of, of Soviet Russia to, it, to the other countries. So he... And so that's what that's what divided. That was the beginning of the Cold War. Uh, that that was what divided Europe. So basically, it was Western Germany all the way to uh, England were in the Marshall Plan, and the rest of them were became the Warsaw Pact. But they did want the Marshall Plan. What the Russians told them they couldn't have it, right? 
Eastern European countries like Poland. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. yeah. Czech, Czech, Czechoslovakia, uh, it, yeah. they loved it. And, but, but Stalin called him in and said, no way. Put his thumb on him. And, uh, you know, the, the, Pol- the Poles were interested in it. Sure. Yeah, why not? You know, they, mm-hmm. po- the Polish. But no, he, he quashed it. And there were meetings. You know, John Masarek uh, was thrown out of a window. Um, the guy, the, the Polish guy. Um, so, I mean, no, I'm sorry, Czech. Yeah, Czech, excuse me. Um, so it was a, it, the plan was, and, and Marshall's genius was bringing the people together and then working with Vandenberg. See, at the, in 1946, the Republicans took over both houses of Congress. So basically, you had a, a Democratic administration and a Republican Congress, Senate and House. So how are you going to get a Marshall plan through uh, a uh, Republican Congress? Well, Marshall was instrumental along with this guy Vandenberg, Arthur Vandenberg, a Michigan senator who was an isolationist until about 1944. And he became, he was a Republican, became uh, chairman of the House, or uh, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So Marshall befriended, befriended Vandenberg at, at a conference in Rio their wives got together and so on. And, and uh, Vandenberg was the kind of uh, senator that had to be courted. He was like a peacock senator, you know, the cigar-smoking, uh, big, big-bellied guy. Um, but he was very influential, uh, and he did a great job of, of pushing that uh, legislative proposal along with Marshall. Uh, and they got it passed by, uh, within, a, within a year. Uh, amazing it was thirteen billion back then, and I it's you know eight hundred uh, t- in today's dollars. Uh, it was a sacrifice. It was a gamble. It was a gamble. And Marshall, when he went to Congress, said it is a gamble, but I think it's going to work. Uh, he had that kind of reputation uh, uh, with 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 Congress. Uh, there's a great story about Senator Vandenberg. I can tell it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Senator, he was, there's a a book written about him, a friend of mine recently came out, um, but because I'm from Michigan, I have this Michigan tie-in. He, um, during the war, the congressman lived in these places in uh, Washington, like the Wardman Park or or the Kennedy Warren, uh, and so uh, Vandenberg lived in uh, the Wardman Park, and his wife, Hazel, uh, was in Grand Rapids most of the time. So, you know, in the halls of the Wardman Park, there was funny business going on, and, uh, and Vandenberg uh, was having an affair with a Danish woman who was married to a U.S. diplomat. <clears throat> she lived down the hall. And she, I forget her last name, but uh, her name was Mitzi, and uh, she's beautiful. Um, and uh, she was... Some suspected of being a, a spy, but anyway, Vandenberg had this uh, affair with her. And back then, the, the, all the reporters knew about it. And uh, back then, they didn't publish it. But they, among the reporters, he was known as the senator from Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? I don't. Know. <laughs> Shows the media used to have a sense of humor. <laughs> okay. Uh, you have a question? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready if you're ready. I'm interested to find out, would you counsel an aspiring military officer today to emulate Marshall's mixture of personality, thinking, planning, training troops, and teaching officers? Well, sure. I mean, he, um, I mean, you know, I, I think he is most like, General Mattis, uh, in my judgment, in terms of the recent uh, generals that I know of, and I don't know, I'm not an expert on all the generals, but <clears throat> Mattis, of course, has gotten so much play recently, uh, and and there's so many profiles written about him, but he, he seemed to me to be similar to, uh, in one way, and I wrote a, an op-ed piece, um, or no, an article, I guess it was, um, uh, comparing him. On the on the duty 
duty to remain silent uh, once she resigned. See, Madison Marshall, the, the only two that were, you know, both generals and secretaries of defense. And they both had to get that law. They had to get an exemption from the law that bars military guys from being secretary of defense. So they both went through the, the same kind of thing. And I don't think there's anybody else who's done that, um, Marshall and Mattis. So that was a natural way to, uh, uh, to look at them because when Mattis resigned, he said he had a duty not to speak about it. But in fact, his letter, that his letter of resignation spoke to it, uh, I mean, in a more subtle way. Uh, and he hasn't written a book about it. But he did say that, you know, I may speak out later. Uh, Marshall, on the other hand, was eternally silent. Uh, and he believed there was, you, you should not speak out. Uh, you know, you take this job, if you disagree with the president uh, and can't work it out, then you resign and you don't talk about it. And Marshall never wrote his memoirs. He was offered a million dollars by the Saturday Evening Post uh, to write them and other people. Uh, so and maybe he was just tired. I don't know. But um, I don't think uh, writing his memoirs was his favorite thing in any event. But he always said, you know, if I, if I write my memoirs, I'm going to make some people unhappy. So I'm just not going to do it. Mm-hmm. He also be, uh, believed that generals should not uh, run for political. They should not run for you know, political office. He counseled Pershing not to do it. Uh, Pershing wanted, uh, was, you know, toying with it in the 20s. Uh, And he counseled Eisenhower not to do it. Eisenhower, of course, did it. Um, So the the question I kind of posed, though, in terms of Madison Marshall, was whether you, if you believe your president, your commander-in-chief, uh, through his actions, is presents a clear and present danger, a clear and present danger to the national security. Um, do you, should you speak out? And uh, would Marshall have spoken out if he were confronted, as I say, a clear and present danger to the national security? Um, and I think then you do have a duty to speak out. And I don't know what Marshall, you know, I don't think Marshall would have put up with it. Uh, so, I don't Hi, I, I'm uh, reading the Andrew Roberts biography, yeah. the Churchill biography, biography and both Churchill and, and uh, Marshall seem to have a lot in common just in terms of the details by which they understand war and war planning. And I'm, I'm wondering, did they have a relationship or a kinship at all that, that you knew of? Did they? Pretty tense relationship. Um, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Churchill was, I mean, they had huge battles um, over, um, it was basically Europe versus the Mediterranean. And because uh, Churchill always resisted the idea of a channel, a cross-channel invasion. He resisted it right until the very end, almost up up to the end of a, when they actually did it. He was still counseling against it. And then, when they wanted to uh, help the cross-channel invasion by having an invasion of southern France to get the ports so they could supply the armies up in Europe, Churchill was against that. And Marshall fought tooth and nail with him. So it, it was, I mean, they, it wasn't, it didn't become, it didn't become, uh, you know, they, they weren't, they didn't have outright fights over it. It was a, basically a battle of, of uh, conferences, uh, arguments, uh, and Churchill was always coming back at him. But I'll tell you one good story about Churchill and Marshall. Um, in May of 1943, once again, they they put off the cross-channel invasion. First of all, it was supposed to be in 42, then it was going to be 43, and now they put it off to 44. So they're in Washington, and Churchill asked Rosie, said Roosevelt, I want to take Marshall with me uh, into the Mediterranean to talk to some of the commanders. Um, he was still pushing for another med-, med thing. And Marshall didn't want to go, but Roosevelt said, no, you, you need to go with him. So they flew in a, they, they had a flight all the way to Algiers 
the, just the two of them, and with and Churchill's plane. And Churchill asked Marshall to write the cable that had to go to Stalin. They had to explain to Stalin why they were once again, you know, not providing a second front, which Stalin had been fighting for since '42, and he's really angry at the at the Allies. And so Marshall wrote the cable, the cable, and and that's when that's when Churchill said. Uh, that's when I learned that Marshall was a statesman. He had a commanding, well, he had, in Churchill's language, he had a commanding view of the entire war situation, and he, and he, he wrote a brilliant you know, explanation of why we were uh, uh, delaying once again. And that's when Churchill really respected Marshall. He disagreed uh, with Marshall, but he respected and he saw He saw that Marshall was was capable and, and actually was going to become a statesman. <clears throat> um, anyway, yeah. Well, my father was in the southern France. Uh, Sorry? My father oh, was in the in southern France uh, attack. Operation uh, Anvil or Dragoon. Uh, on yeah. the same, same day yeah. as D-Day. Uh, in the early 1950s, um, Joe McCarthy attacked George Marshall. Uh, and my understanding is that Eisenhower did not defend uh, Marshall. And I was wondering if you could speak to how that impacted uh, their relationship. Well, it was in George's home state. Um, George Hammond grew up, he grew up in Wisconsin. And Marsh, or Eisenhower was running, and it was a Wisconsin primary, um, running for president in 1952. Uh, and... <clears throat> They were, they were, there was a, they, he was going to give a speech. I was going to give a speech um, in Wisconsin. And on the dais was Joe McCarthy, um, senator from Wisconsin, and also Governor Kohler, I think, K-O-H, mm-hmm. the guy that does the bathroom fixture. The, the faucets, yeah. Right. <clears throat> bathroom fixture guy. And uh, <laughs> so... The speech was written, and it had a paragraph in it praising Marshall. It was distributed to the reporters, <clears throat> um, but Kohler and McCarthy said, "You can't, you can't say that in in this uh, to this group." <clears throat> and so Eisenhower uh, did not; he, he kept it out of the uh, of his speech. Uh, but you know, it was in it was in the written part of the speech, uh, so. Uh, but he deferred to them. Uh, he was running for the presidency. Uh, and Mrs. Marshall, Catherine, was outraged. She never forgave. I mean, Marshall had made Eisenhower, you know, this is, he made Eisenhower's career. Uh, so um, he, from the very beginning. So, but Marshall blew it off. He just said, you know, uh, it's politics, it's okay. Marshall was magnanimous toward Eisenhower's magnanimous toward McCarthy. He, one of his hallmarks of his character was magnanimity. Um, so um, it was, uh, and then McCarthy, though, did, he had a book published uh, by a, a writer from somewhere and, 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 uh, and some other writer. It's a, uh, a little booklet. I bought it. I actually got a copy of it. You can get it on eBay or something. And it was a whole book devoted to what a traitor Marshall was. And he read, he read it uh, on the Senate floor. Uh, the senators weren't there, but there was a gallery. And he read it for several hours, uh, the whole book. Um, and, it was, and Marshall said, you know, if I have to defend myself uh, uh, you know, for treason, you know, uh, I've, I've done it. I'm not doing it, you know, so... Uh, and McCarthy was really on his case, um, and believed he. Of course, he, he believed he lost China, but that was just part of it. <clears throat> yeah, for those of you who will still be here in June and aren't going to be gone, we have Susan Eisenhower coming, the uh, granddaughter mm. of of Ike. To, she has written a new book called "How Ike Led," so it'll be all about. Ike. I had lunch with her. Oh, uh, did you? About two weeks ago. Oh, great! But one thing you should know about. Well, let me just. 
let me just make a pitch for on May 8th in Washington, uh, there's going to be the dedication of the Eisenhower uh, Memorial Monument. And this is a really a big deal because it's, it's the 75th anniversary of VE Day in mm-hmm. Europe. And these statues are now being placed. It's across from air and space, across independence from air and space. And these statues are, are amazing. They're, um, one of them is that famous uh, 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 photograph of Eisenhower talking to the 101st Airborne mm-hmm. uh, on the afternoon of uh, uh, before D-Day. You know, you know, everybody had the things under their... And they were all, you know, they, they were looking. They were warriors, and he was giving them the pitch. There's a statue of that. Uh, they've asked the president to come. He hasn't decided yet, and Pence may come, but, you know, we'll see. Um, the next day, May 9th, is VE Day in Russia. Hmm. And so Trump might go there. <laughs> well, you know, it's going to be a big deal there, too. <laughs> but Susan, one thing about Susan is... The whole thing about Mamie and Kay Summersby, mm-hmm. don't get into that. No, we won't. Okay. <laughs> no questions on that. There's time for one more question. I'm sorry. To, but. I'm recognizing a lot of brilliance and, and glory and, in your talk. That's my takeaway. Thank you. And what, if you had, if, 50 years from today, if you had to write a book, is there anybody that would qualify with the people that you've talked about this evening? Well, I, you know, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but when the answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> I think, let me just say one yeah. thing. Uh, the uh, when 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 Marshall gave his Marshall Plan speech to Harvard, May June 1947. He got an honorary degree that morning from the president of Harvard. And the honorary degree said something like, <clears throat> I don't have it all to memorize, but to a soldier and statesman who brooks only, a soldier and statesman who brooks only one comparison. And what he meant was George Washington. No, because, you know, you, Grant was a great soldier, but the statesman part didn't go. Uh, and there have been statesmen, you know, but... I don't think there's anybody in our history uh, other than Washington who really, uh, in terms of a soldier and statesman, who uh, can even be, you know, at, at the elbow of Washington, and that's Marshall. I don't, I don't know uh, anybody in, in the 20th century uh, of, of American history uh, so we've lost a lot. who comes close. <laughs> and... He doesn't have a monument in Washington at his. He didn't want that. And asking for that quote from Harvard was the way I wanted to end this. Oh, so thank you very, very much. That was that was excellent. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for coming.